Chapter Seventeen of Round the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Round the Moon by Jules Verne, Chapter Seventeen. Tycho. At six in the evening, the projectile passed the South Pole at less than forty miles off a distance equal to that already reached at the North Pole. The elliptical curve was being rigidly carried out. At this moment the travellers once more entered the blessed rays of the sun. They saw once more those stars which move slowly from east to west. The radiant orb was saluted by a triple hurrah. With its light it also sent heat, which soon pierced the metal walls. The glass resumed its accustomed appearance. The layers of ice melted as if by enchantment, and immediately, for economy's sake, the gas was put out, the air apparatus alone consuming its usual quantity. Ah, said Nicole, these rays of heat are good. With what impatience must the selenite wait the reappearance of the orb of day? Yes, replied Michel Ardin imbibing as it were the brilliant ether light and heat all life is contained in them at this moment the bottom of the projectile deviated somewhat from the lunar surface in order to follow the slightly lengthened elliptical orbit from this point had the earth been at the full barbicane and his companions could have seen it but immersed in the sun's irradiation she was quite invisible Another spectacle attracted their attention, that of the southern part of the moon, brought by glasses to within 450 yards. They did not again leave the scuttles, and noted every detail of this fantastical continent. Mounts Durfol and Leibnitz formed two separate groups very near the south pole. The first group extended from the pole to the 84th parallel, on the eastern part of the orb, the second occupied the eastern border, extending from the sixty-five degree of latitude to the pole. On their capriciously formed ridge appeared dazzling sheets, as mentioned by Père Secchi, with more certainty than the illustrious Roman astronomer, Barbicane was enabled to recognize their nature. "'They are snow!' he exclaimed. "'Snow?' repeated Nicole. "'Yes, Nicole, snow, the surface of which is deeply frozen. "'See how they reflect the luminous rays. "'Cooled lava would never give out such intense reflection. "'There must then be water. "'There must be air on the moon. "'As little as you please, but the fact can no longer be contested.' "'No, it could not be. "'And if ever Barbicane should see the earth again, "'his notes will bear witness to this great fact.' in his selenographic observations. These mountains, Durfol and Leibnitz, rose in the midst of plains of a medium extent, which were bounded by an indefinite succession of circles and annular ramparts. These two chains are the only ones met with in this region of circles. Comparatively, but slightly marked, they throw up here and there some sharp points, the highest summit of which attains an altitude of 24,600 feet. But the projectile was high above all this landscape, and the projections disappeared in the intense brilliancy of the disk. And to the eyes of the travellers there reappeared that original aspect of the lunar landscapes, 
raw in tone, without gradation of colours, and without degrees of shadow, roughly black and white, from the want of diffusion of light. But the sight of this desolate world did not fail to captivate them by its very strangeness. They were moving over this region as if they had been born on the breadth of some storm, watching heights defile under their feet, piercing the cavities with their eyes, going down into the rifts, climbing the ramparts, sounding these mysterious holes, and levelling all cracks. But no trace of vegetation, no appearance of cities, nothing but stratification, beds of lava, overflowings polished like immense rivers, reflecting the sun's rays with overpowering brilliancy. Nothing belonging to a living world, everything to a dead world, where avalanches, rolling from the summits of the mountains, would disperse noiselessly at the bottom of the abyss, retaining the motion, but wanting the sound. In any case, it was the image of death, without its being possible even to say that life had ever existed there. Michel Ardin, however, thought he recognized a heap of ruins, to which he drew Barbicane's attention. It was about the eightieth parallel, in thirty degrees longitude. This heap of stones, rather regularly placed, represented a vast fortress, overlooking a long rift, which in former days had served as a bed to the rivers of prehistorical times. Not far from that rose to a height of seventeen thousand four hundred feet the annular mountain of Short, equal to the Asiatic Caucasus. Michel Artin, with his accustomed ardour, maintained the evidences of his fortress. Beneath it he discerned the dismantled ramparts of a town, here the still intact arch of a portico, there two or three columns lying under their base, further on a succession of arches which must have supported the conduit of an aqueduct, in another part the sunken pillars of a gigantic bridge run into the thickest parts of the rift. He distinguished all this, but with so much imagination in his glance, and through glasses so fantastical, that we must mistrust his observation. But who could affirm, who would dare to say, that the amiable fellow did not really see that which his two companions would not see? Moments were too precious to be sacrificed in idle discussion. The Selenite city, whether imaginary or not, had already disappeared afar off. The distance of the projectile from the lunar disk was on the increase, and the details of the soil were being lost in a confused jumble. The reliefs, the circles, the craters, and the plains alone remained, and still showed their boundary lines distinctly. At this moment, to the left, lay extended one of the finest circles of lunar orography, one of the curiosities of this continent. It was Newton which Barbicane recognized without trouble, by referring to the Mappa Selenographica. Newton is situated in exactly 77 degrees south latitude and 16 degrees east longitude. It forms an annular crater, the ramparts of which, rising to a height of 21,300 feet, seem to be impassable. Barbicane made his companions observe that the height of this mountain above the surrounding plain was far from equalling the depth of its crater, 
This enormous hole was beyond all measurement, and formed a gloomy abyss, the bottom of which the sun's rays could never reach. There, according to Humboldt, reigns utter darkness, which the light of the sun and the earth cannot break. Mythologists could well have made it the mouth of hell. Newton, said Barbicane, is the most perfect type of these annular mountains, of which the earth possesses no sample. They prove that the moon's formation, by means of cooling, is due to violent causes. For while, under the pressure of internal fires, the reliefs rise to considerable height, the depths withdraw far below the lunar level. I do not dispute the fact, replied Michel Ardain. Some minutes after passing Newton, the projectile directly overlooked the annular mountains of Moret. It skirted at some distance the summits of Blancanus, and at about half-past seven in the evening reached the circle of Clavius. This circle, one of the most remarkable of the disk, is situated in 58 degrees south latitude and 15 degrees east longitude. Its height is estimated at 22,950 feet. The travellers, at a distance of twenty-four miles, reduced to four by their glasses, could admire this vast crater in its entirety. Terrestrial volcanoes, said Barbicane, are but molehills compared to those of the moon. Measuring the old craters formed by the first eruptions of Vesuvius and Etna, we find them little more than three miles in breadth. In France, the circles of the Cantal measure six miles across. At Ceyland, the circles of the island is forty miles, which is considered the largest on the globe. What are these diameters against that of Clavius, which we overlook at this moment? What is its breadth? asked Nicole. It is one hundred and fifty miles, replied Barbicane. This circle is certainly the most important on the moon, but many others measure a hundred and fifty, hundred, or seventy-five miles. "'Ah, my friends!' exclaimed Michel. "'Can you picture to yourselves what this now peaceful orb of night must have been when its craters, filled with thunderings, vomited at the same time smoke and tongues of flame? What a wonderful spectacle then, and now what decay!' This moon is nothing more than a thin carcass of fireworks, whose squibs, rockets, serpents, and suns, after a superb brilliancy, have left but sadly broken cases. Who can say the cause, the reason, the motive force of these cataclysms? Barbicane was not listening to Michel Ardain. He was contemplating these ramparts of Clavius, formed by large mountains spread over several miles, at the bottom of the immense cavity burrowed hundreds of small extinguished craters, riddling the soil like a colander, and overlooked by a peak fifteen thousand feet high. Around the plain appeared desolate. Nothing so arid as these reliefs, nothing so sad as these ruins of mountains, and, if we may so express ourselves, these fragments of peaks and mountains which strewed the soil. The satellite seemed to have burst at this spot. The projectile was still advancing, and this movement did not subside. Circles, craters, and uprooted mountains succeeded each other incessantly. No more plains, no more seas, a never-ending Switzerland and Norway. And lastly, in the canter of this region of crevices, 
the most splendid mountain on the lunar disk, the dazzling Tycho, in which posterity will ever preserve the name of the illustrious Danish astronomer. In observing the full moon in a cloudless sky, no one has failed to remark this brilliant point of the southern hemisphere. Michel Ardain used every metaphor that his imagination could supply to designate it by. To him this Tycho was a focus of light, a centre of irradiation, a crater vomiting rays. It was the tire of a brilliant wheel, an asteria enclosing the disc with its silver tentacles, an enormous eye filled with flames, a glory carved for Pluto's head, a star launched by the Creator's hand and crushed against the face of the moon. Tycho forms such a concentration of light that the inhabitants of the earth can see it without glasses, though at a distance of 240,000 miles. Imagine, then, its intensity to the eye of observers placed at a distance of only 50 miles. Seen through this pure ether, its brilliancy was so intolerable that Barbicane and his friends were obliged to blacken their glasses with the gas-smoke before they could bear the splendor. Then, silent, scarcely uttering an interjection of admiration, they gazed, they contemplated. All their feelings, all their impressions, were concentrated in that look, as under any violent emotion all life is concentrated at the heart. Tycho belongs to the system of radiating mountains, like Aristarchus and Copernicus, but it is of all the most complete and decided, showing unquestionably the frightful volcanic action to which the formation of the moon is due. Tycho is situated in 43 degrees south latitude and 12 degrees east longitude. Its centre is occupied by a crater 50 miles broad. It assumes a slightly elliptical form and is surrounded by an enclosure of annular ramparts, which on the east and west overlook the outer plain from a height of 15,000 feet. It is a group of Mont Blancs, placed round one common centre and crowned by radiating beams. What this incomparable mountain really is, with all the projections converging towards it, and the interior excrescences of its crater. Photography itself could never represent. Indeed, it is during the full moon that Tycho is seen in all its splendour. Then all shadows disappear, the foreshortening of perspective disappears, and all proofs become white, a disagreeable fact. For this strange region would have been marvellous if reproduced with photographic exactness. It is but a group of hollows, craters, circles, a network of crests. Then, as far as the eye could see, a whole volcanic network cast upon this encrusted soil. One can then understand that the bubbles of this central eruption have kept their first form. Crystallized by cooling, they have stereotyped that aspect which the moon formerly presented when under the Plutonian forces. The distance which separated the travellers from the annular summits of Tycho was not so great, but that they could not catch the principal details. Even on the causeway, forming the fortifications of Tycho, the mountains hanging on to the interior and exterior sloping flanks rose in stories like gigantic terraces. 
they appeared to be higher by three hundred or four hundred feet to the west than to the east. No system of terrestrial encampment could equal these natural fortifications. A town built at the bottom of this circular cavity would have been utterly inaccessible. Inaccessible and wonderfully extended over this soil covered with picturesque projections. Indeed, nature had not left the bottom of this crater flat and empty. It possessed its own peculiar orography, a mountainous system making it a world in itself. The travellers could distinguish clearly cones, central hills, remarkable positions of the soil, naturally placed to receive the chef d'oeuvre of selenite architecture. There was marked out the place for a temple, here the ground of a forum, on this spot the plan of a palace, in another the plateau for a citadel, the whole overlooked by a central mountain of one thousand five hundred feet, a vast circle in which the ancient Rome could have been held in its entirety ten times over. Ah! exclaimed Michel Ardain, enthusiastic at the sight. What a grand town might be constructed within that ring of mountains, a quiet city, a peaceful refuge, beyond all human misery. How calm and isolated those misanthropes, those haters of humanity, might live there, and all those who have a distaste for social life. All, it would be too small for them, replied Barbicane simply. End of chapter 17